Verse 27. A great number of the people followed him, among them women who were mourning and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For this is certain, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore children, and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if such things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And that's a statement. Like, if this is what people do to living things, imagine what they'll do to things that are dead. What is Jesus going on here? What he's saying is, what is happening on this day to me is not what you should be weeping over. What you should be weeping over is when I told you that in 70 AD, now Jesus didn't say the year, but in hindsight we know the year. When 70 AD, the Jews, the Romans come and they tear down the temple and they begin to attack you and kill you. And then again in 135 AD, they finish everything they started and they drive you out of the land or kill you completely. That is a far greater day to weep than anything that is happening to me today. Why? Not because Jesus is just humble and thinks about them more than himself, which he does. But because that's the day that God is bringing the judgment upon you for rejecting what is happening to Christ on this day. What, is, what should bring you greater weeping and mourning is not that your God is dying for your sins on the cross today, no matter how horrific it is. What should bring you greater weeping is when you receive the judgment of God for rejecting your God's death on the cross for you on this day. Because 70 AD and 135 AD marks the day that God judges the Jews for rejecting him and goes completely to the Gentiles. And now only way into Christ is through the church. Now, Jews and everybody can come to Christ and church does not replace the Jews as a chosen people, but it just becomes the new doorway to the chosen people. Because the chosen people has always been Israel. In the First Testament, it was Israel. Jews by biology and Gentiles who come in by faith. And the Second Testament, it's the people of Israel. The church who have grown up in the faith and the Jews who come back to Christ. But it's always been Israel. A people of God, not an ethnicity. And so what Jesus is saying is the greater thing that you should weep is the fact that God is going to choose a different people through which salvation will be you will enter into salvation, even though salvation is still open for all. And that's what he's thinking about, is you are not going to accept this. Verse 32, Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. So when they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, now we don't know whether this is called Golgotha, the skull, because it looked like a skull, or because so many people have been killed there, that there's so many skulls. Because remember the people who have no family to claim their body were buried there as well. And on the other side of the hill, we know there was a, a burial site, a quarry. And quarry was a very popular site to build tombs in. And Joseph Arimathea had one there. So it could be the place of the skull, because this is where the unmarked and the marked bodies were all put as a burial site. Or it could be called a skull because it looked like one. So scholars have no idea which way to go on that one. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Then they threw dice to divide his clothes. 
Now, when Jesus is saying this, he's not meaning they have no idea what they're doing, like they're a bunch of idiots. What he means is that they do not fully get the full extent of what is really happening on this day and what they're truly going to be held responsible. One thing to be held responsible for murder, false justice. It's another thing that they have no idea what they're, who they're being responsible for murdering. The full implication of this. This is the king's son from his parable. Then they divided his clothes. So they threw dice. Now remember all throughout the Bible, casting lots, nothing good ever happens that round. And so the Romans throw dice in order to determine who gets the clothing. And the reason they have to throw dice is they're dividing the clothing, but we're told that they don't actually rip it. Now, it wasn't uncommon, like your clothes today, for a couple pieces of fabric to be stitched together. But Jesus couldn't be unstitched and then separate and make something else because his clothing was all one piece of fabric. This points to the fact that this is like a Gianni Versace robe of the ancient world. Because remember, it was provided to him by the women. And the women that are following him were very wealthy women of great means. So when they provided for him, they provided him the best. And this shows him. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is like, ooh, living it all up in the celebrity world with all of his like yachts and all that kind of stuff. It just means this is how the women viewed him as they gave to him. They gave to him the best that they had. And so they divide the clothes up, which means he's, once again, he's completely naked, absolutely naked before all people. This is incredibly humiliating. Except at that point, that's probably the least of your worries. The people also stood there watching, but the rulers ridiculed him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ or Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There were also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. The people are mocking him. Look, you're able to save all these people. Why can't you save yourself? But remember, they don't understand that it's not that Christ is incapable of saving himself, it's that he refuses to, because not my will be done, but thy will be done. They're mocking him in their absolute total ignorance. And they think they're all that, and they're so funny. But then the Romans mock him even more, and they basically says that they offer him sour wine. Now, it doesn't say that they actually gave him the sour wine. This was not, now a lot of people think like this is like a horrible thing. We think of like sour wine, that's horrible to drink. So they think, oh, ha, ha, here, drink this horrible sour wine, and this is funny. That's not all that's going on. Who carries sour wine around with them at a crucifixion? This is vinegar mixed with water. It's the wine of the poor people. And it basically, we all know from the internet today, vinegar cures, insoles, and cleans everything. Vinegar actually has lots of medicinal properties in it. And so the poor, this is their way of putting vinegar into the water to kill a lot of the bad things that are in the water because it's the ancient world. And it also gives them that, so it's, 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 it's vinegar. And it actually would be a good thing to drink this. And it could be just a mocking like, here, you want something to drink? Ha ha, no, never mind, just kidding, kind of a thing. Psalm 69.2 talks about the vinegar being offered. And in that context, it's given in a mocking, but taking it away before you can have it kind of a way. And so the fact that the authors quote Luke is quoting this passage and given the nature of what they're like, this is the way to be seen. is not that he actually drinks it, but it's been taken away from him. 
The incredible love of Jesus is seen in the fact that he was forgiving them of their sins, not just by dying for them on the cross, but he stated this forgiveness aloud as they were in the midst of killing him. This isn't something that took him years to finally get to the point to allow God to work active forgiveness in him. This is forgiveness that he's truly offering them in the moment of the suffering, as he's literally in the process of forgiving them in an absolutely holistic, once and for all, salvation redemption. This shows you the true love of Christ. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanging there railed at him, saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we rightly and we rightly so, for we are getting what we deserve for what we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. What this shows you is this is the famous passage that even with very little life of Holy Spirit transformation, one can still be saved. Now, a lot of people have pointed to the fact that, like, look, you don't even have to produce fruit, and you can still be saved and go to heaven. Because this thief is, like, literally, like, just defending him, and then he dies within hours. Or, yeah, with hours, because his legs are going to get broke. But the problem with that is, he is demonstrating fruit. He's defending Christ. And that's, the, that's fruit in itself. Not a whole lot of fruit, because he's not going to live for many hours. But yes, the point is that even in your final hours, you can accept Christ, and Christ will accept you and receive you. But once again, remember Christ made the point over and over again that true faith is marked by fruit. True faith is marked by love. True faith is marked by perseverance. And even this thief on the cross is producing fruit as he defends Christ on the cross and he's showing love for Christ and perseverance because remember he's wasting a breath in order to defend Christ. He's sacrificing his breath in order to say, stop it, stop it. Don't mock him in any kind of a way, which telling people to stop mocking other people is usually futile, and yet he's still doing it. And then he says, please remember me. And so we see, yes, very, very, very small basket of this, but this is the example of a criminal, the least likely to be saved, with the least amount of time to produce fruit and perseverance and love, and yet we see it. And Christ is forgiving him. And then he says, today you will be with paradise. me with paradise. This would have been revolutionary. Because remember, all the Jews, according to the First Testament, knew that no one went to heaven to be with God. No one went to heaven. When Samuel was awakened, he's not in heaven. They went into the, 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 the prophets, talked about them going to Sheol, the grave. Okay, nobody went to heaven. Every single vision in the First Testament, there's never any humans there. The, the Jesus' parable of Abraham and the rich man and Lazarus, is no, there's no concept of heaven there. And we know that the Second Testament makes it very clear in the First Testament that none can be in the presence of God who are sinners, who are not righteous. And so the fact that Jesus is saying, today you will be with me in paradise, is revolutionary because this guy is going to be one of the first people to enter into heaven for the first time ever in all of human history because Jesus is going to die before him. Jesus is going to die before him. 
which also points to the fact that heaven is instantaneously opened up at the moment of his death, not necessarily his resurrection, in that kind of a sense. Because today, and that word today in the Greek means today, literally today, not like any metaphorical sense. So this is the defense of the thief. Verse 44, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, because the sun's light failed. Now, this is not a solar eclipse. Some people are like, oh, it's a solar eclipse. This is three hours of darkness. So for three hours, because remember, Christ is the light. And now he is being killed. And so the whole cosmos is responding to the light dying. The light dying. All the trials were done about by the sun rising. Around 6 o'clock in the morning, all the trials were done. And then probably somewhere in the next three hours, um, he was placed on the cross. That journey, the hammering, all that kind of stuff we don't know. He's on the cross for multiple hours until we get to noon. And then at noon, Jesus is in such a state of um, suffering and dying that this is where the sun finally goes dark. And they are all watching this. Remember Joel prophesied on that day, God will pour out his spirit and da, 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 all this kind of stuff. And that the sun would go dark and the moon with that kind of stuff. And a lot of people point to the book of Revelation as a fulfillment of that. But in some ways, this could also be the fulfillment. This could be the fulfillment. And that language in Joel, it could be highly metaphorical and just as a sense of darkness being the land from our sins. Or it could be literal and that this is actually happening and it could be literal that it's going to happen again one day. But it doesn't have to be a cosmic sense that like God is literally turning the sun off. It could just be that things are going dark. The temple curtain was torn in two, and then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after this, he said, he breathed his last words. And after he said this, he breathed his last words. So around three o'clock is when he died. Around 3 o'clock is when he died. Somewhere between 3 and 6. Because we know the sun is setting at 6. The temple curtain veil is a big, big, big deal, theologically speaking. Remember, the tabernacle slash temple was divided into two rooms. The tabernacle itself was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. And so the tabard, the holy place, the front room, was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And the Holy of Holies was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It's the only place in the First Testament where we have a cube, a perfect cube. And this is the Holy, holy of Holies. Only the high priest, this is where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, and this is where the Shekinah glory of God rests on top of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the presence of God. And the only way you get into the tabernacle courtyard is if you were a part of the Abrahamic covenant by faith and you came in with the animal sacrifice, the atonement of sins. That was the only way into the courtyard. And the only way into the holy place is that you had to be a priest who had dedicated your entire life to an extra level of righteousness and holiness and doing the work of God. 
And then only the high priest one time a year was allowed into the actual Holy of Holies who dedicated himself to an extra level of holiness. And when we went through the book of Leviticus, required a whole lot of rituals and sacrifices and all kinds of stuff to cleanse him. And then when he went in, he had to go in with the blood of a goat on top of all the other sacrifices they had um, executed that day. And then he went in with this censer filled with smoke that would fill that 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot room so thick with smoke. If you've ever seen a cantor like a Greek Orthodox or Catholic church or even some Jewish mosque or um, mosque, that was not good. Um, (laughs) Jewish synagogues, um, the smoke just billows out, billows out. And so he wouldn't even be able to see the Ark of the Covenant or the Shekinah Glory. Because there's no access to God because of your sin. And so now this veil, by the time that Herod has flipped this temple, okay, remember Zerubbabel built the temple back in the book of Ezra, and it was kind of pathetic compared to Solomon. But then Herod came along and like flipped it out and made it even bigger and put a lot of gold on it. By the time we get to Jesus, it's reported by historians that the curtain was about 18 inches thick and about four stories tall. And if you've ever gone to like a stage where they do plays and try to move those curtains, like like Ohio Theater, they're thick and heavy. And that's nowhere care. So they would have to take ropes or hooks and have men hauling this curtain to the side. And remember, it's one piece of curtain. So they go in at the side, not in the middle like a stage. And this curtain is about four stories tall, and it rips from the top down ripping an 18-inch thick fabric with your own hands or really good scissors is not possible. And ripping it from the bottom up would be a lot easier, although it's impossible, than ripping from the top down on four stories, which points to the absolute supernatural act of this event. But what it's really saying is that access to God has been opened up. John's gospel really portrays this truly better than any gospel writer does. But remember the very beginning in chapter 2 of John's gospel, Jesus says, my father's house. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And then it says that he said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And in chapter 2, they say, wait a minute. It took us years to, re- to build this temple. How in the world are you going to do this in three days? And the, the, the John, in hindsight, writing about this, now filled with the Holy Spirit, says they did not know, including us, that he was talking about his body. So he makes it very clear that the temple is his body. The Father's house, which saying Father would have been considered blasphemy to the Jews, is an intimacy, it's a relationship intimacy. That Father's house is the temple, and it's also his body. At the end of John, he goes back into the temple again and cleanses again, but this time he says, my house. So between these two passages, he's making it very clear the temple is truly his body, and the Father's house and his house are synonymous. Then in John chapter 14, in the upper room, when he's doing the Passover meal, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. Now, we've also often interpreted this as Jesus is going to die, raise, ascend into heaven. And there he's going to go up into heaven. And he's going to prepare a place for you in heaven through his crucifixion so that you can one day go to heaven. 
And then we mistranslated this passage as many mansions. So then we got this idea, oh my gosh, we're all going to get mansions. And he's going to make our bed up and put little Andy's mints on it and welcome us because he's preparing a place for us like a bed and breakfast. Okay, he'll even turn down the blankets for us. And then we do this horribly sacrilegious song in my father's house. There's a big, big room and we're going to play football all the time as if that's why Jesus died on the cross for you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that stuff won't be there. But the entire song is about all these materialistic things that we get to do. Not like, hey, I get to be in the presence of God. Jeff Moore in the distance, I know they're thinking that. But when they pinned it, that didn't come out. I don't like that song. And it's also an annoying song. What Jesus meant is over and over again, John's giving, remember, if you, English teachers, there's authorial intent. Okay, And authors spend a lot of time developing themes and ideas and then connecting them and weaving them through books. And you can't just make it what you want it to be because it's a violation of authorial intent. And, and that's the most important thing, even though this is a horrible thing to say in today's age. It's all about what I want it to be. But John has made it very clear by developing these themes. My father's house, my father's house, my father's house is actually Jesus' body. So when Jesus is my father's house, he's talking about himself. He's talking about the temple. He is the new temple. We go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 through 10, where the glory of God left the tabernacle or the temple. And then in 40, it returns. But it returns, and it's never called a temple. It just says that it's, it, it comes back to the city of Jerusalem. And the city is this huge temple-like thing, and it fills all the earth. And then what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, over and over again in that context, he's been talking about, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to you. And he makes it very clear that the coming back is not the second coming of Christ in the context. He makes it very clear the coming back is when he reveals himself to them as the evidence of his crucifixion to the disciples three days later. So everything in, the, in, the, in this context suggests that what he's talking about is, I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you in my father's house, which is my body. And I need to destroy it and rebuild it. So what he's saying is I'm going to rebuild, to destroy this one room temple that only one man once a year can barely enter. And I'm going to tear down that temple and I'm going to rebuild it with multiple rooms so that all people, men, women, rich, poor, healthy, not healthy, all, st all ethnicities, all nations, the lame, the cripple, all people will have a room in me. And in all that context, he's also wrapping it in this repetitive language, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Remain in me and I'll remain in you. And then Paul picks this up and says, we are the dwelling place of God. We are the body of Christ. Peter says that we're all living stones being built into Christ as the foundation stone. This is very evident that what Jesus is talking about is I'm going to tear down that external metaphorical temple and rebuild it in my resurrection where all men and women, free and slave, rich and poor, healthy and not, all ethnicities can dwell in me. And they can live in me continuously 24-7 so that the room that Christ has prepared for you is instantaneous upon conversion not something that you wait years for when you get into heaven. And remember, the ultimate goal is not us to go to heaven, but for Christ, the, for heaven to come to earth. 
Because then when we get to Revelation, it says, Behold, I saw the kingdom of God coming down, the new Jerusalem. And it says there will be no temple because Christ is the temple. And then it says, and that new Jerusalem was 144,000 stadias by 140,000, 140,000. It's the only cube in the Second Testament. There's only two cubes in the Bible. The Holy of Holies, which was destroyed by Christ, and the new Holy of Holies, which is the new Jerusalem, which is Christ, which is the temple, which is the bride, which is the Garden of Eden coming down to earth, which is the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, the temple is now, the minute you convert. You can instantaneously enter into him, and he can enter into you right at the moment of your conversion. And this is made clear when the Holy Spirit enters into the believers in Acts chapter 2 in the form of a little Shekinah glory of God's. And so what Jesus is saying is, you have access to the temple now. There's no longer one room. I have many rooms in me, and you all dwell there, and we're therefore we're all connected by the same Spirit. And this is the point that Christ is making by ripping the veil. The other Gospels point to the fact that when they wanted to see whether he was truly or dead or not, they poked him in the side with a spear. And we know that once you bleed out completely, all that's left is for water. And the fact that very little blood comes out and is followed by water is pointing to the fact of how much he had already bled out through the flogging. And that's probably a lot of what he died of, too, as in addition to that. John goes on in First John and says the blood and the water is the atonement and the spirit. This takes you back to Ezekiel because when Ezekiel had a vision of the new temple, the new Jerusalem, he said that a river of water came out of the temple on the south side and flowed out into all the world and turned all the world into the Garden of Eden. And so John then says the water that's coming out of Christ's side is the spirit, which is once again pointing to the fact that Jesus is the temple of Ezekiel chapter 40 through 47 and that he is the temple now for you and that the Holy Spirit is going out to all the world. And so as the gospel and the spirit has gone to every ethnicity and every nation in the last 2,000 years, and as the church becomes Christ and the love of Christ and the kingdom of God building it, in some sense, we are expanding the Garden of Eden. We are expanding the temple with each new believer that comes into the temple and each new believer who begins to expand the garden through their careers and through their lives and through their words and their deeds and their thoughts till one day Christ finishes the expansion and his second coming. We're not awaiting for Christ to come and build the temple. He has asked us to build the temple now and expand this Garden of Eden, this river for us now, that will be complete when he comes because only he can truly do that. And only we can do it when we allow the Holy Spirit to flow into us, through us, and out of us. And that's the point that is being made here by his stabbing. It's not just a biological thing. It's a spiritual theological thing. Verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all those who knew Jesus stood at a distance, and the women who had followed him from Galilee saw these things. The Roman centurion watching all this comes to the conclusion, My goodness, he is definitely a son of a God. 
don't interpret that phrase through a biblical lens of theology. He's not saying he is the Daniel God, man, son of God. He has no problem understanding humans being gods as well, like Hercules and Perseus and that kind of stuff. But what he is recognizing is that this guy is more than a human. All these mythologies of Perseus and Hercules and all of them being half God, half man that I have never witnessed ever in my entire life. I am now truly witnessing something like that to the best of my ability as a Roman Gentile mythological religious pagan guy can understand it with a very brief understanding of what I saw just now. And so he recognizes that it is obvious I do not have the First Testament. And yet I can see that this man has godness in him. True divinity in him. And that God, a God, the God, whatever you want to say, is orchestrating behind this. Does this eventually lead to his full-blown conversion? I don't know. But what it does point to is, my goodness, why couldn't the Jews see it? Why couldn't the Jews see it? And all those who knew Jesus stood at a distance. And the women who had followed him from Galilee saw these things. They're all witnesses to this. And they're all mourning this fact. This would have been an incredibly dark day. We talked about him on Mount Carmel with Elijah when he was having the battle. And all those prophets of Baal and Asherah, 850 strong, are jumping up and down and chanting and invoking the spirits of the Baal and that kind of stuff. And then they go in that frantic frenzy prophesying which communicates some demonic activity. And as Elijah being spiritually sensitive and visible, being able to see and touch and hear the spiritual realm, because that's clearly laid out as a criteria to be a prophet, being a part of the divine council, and shown in multiple stories of the Elijah story, he would have seen this. And, 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 and how oppressive that demonic activity would have been on him as being open to the spiritual realm for hours on that hill. I can't imagine the demonic activity and the weight of it when the, the Son of God is dying. Dying. Now you have to understand, this isn't just the crucifixion. This isn't just the most excruciating, physically, horrifically painful thing that you could ever possibly experience in a death penalty. We're also talking about a relational, emotional horrific pain that he's going through because this is his own children. These are his own creation that he spoke into existence, that he has loved and persevered and forgiven throughout the thousands of years and that who he's dying on the cross right now for because he loves them so much doing this. I can't imagine the horror emotionally if my three daughters teamed up against me and, and, and killed me because they hated me so bad let alone to be the father of the universe and your creation to turn against you and do this. So the emotional turmoil of pain and suffering that he's got to go through, the mental anguish of all this, but spiritually too, can you no, you can't. Can't even comprehend the fact of what it means for the living, eternal God to die what it means for the living God of the universe to die, what it means for the Trinity that is one being, one consciousness, but yet three consciousnesses, what it means for that one being to have a third, but yet a whole, but that's Trinity math, to die 
to be ripped, because remember, true death, death is separation. So death in the garden was separation from God. We're all born spiritually dead, separated from God. Physical death is our spirit being separated from our body. Eternal death is separated for all eternity. You can have the death of a relationship, separation. The death of a job, a death of a dream, separation. Death is separation. So to have one part of the Trinity ripped away from the other parts to the point that Jesus becomes sin in some way that I can't even theologically comprehend, let alone explain, that God can't look upon him, that God not only is Jesus being ripped from him, but that God can't even look upon his own self anymore, and that Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Knowing the answer, but still having to feel the pain. And the penalty for our sin is eternal death, which means Jesus is the eternal God, is dying some kind of eternal death to pay for all of our sins for all eternity. So that we don't, I mean, we could die, but we have to stay dead for all eternity to truly pay for our sins. Yet he's doing that. And so on, what does it mean for the cosmos, for the living God of the universe that's spoken into existence to die, to be separated from everything else? I mean, we, we know the pain and suffering that we go through when a friend betrays us and walks away, when a spouse divorces us and walks away, or, or an affair. And even if you've never experienced all this stuff, you've watched friends or family go through it, and you have some kind of a sympathetic idea. But this is the Trinity being separated. And so we're talking about none of us can fully comprehend, let alone have an iota of an understanding of the true suffering that Christ is truly going through and what it means the creator of all life to die for three days and what that means on a cosmic, eternal level. This is absolute suffering. And there's probably way more going on that I've never even thought about in a cosmic level. And this is where we can do our best, and God has given us so much to understand what is going on here, but there's still a mystery to the cross that we can ever hope to plumb the depths of, even on the other side of the New Jerusalem, because we're not God. And there's a mystery to this death. And to treat it frivolously or to act like it's not that big of a deal is absolutely ignorant and insulting on so many levels. He has to die. Now, why does he have to die as the God-man? Remember, we talked about this at the very beginning, but I'm going to come back to it again. As he has to be a human, he has to be a human. Because as a human, only a human can represent humans. Only a human has sins, so therefore only a human can die for sins. God can't die for your sins because he hasn't sinned. He's not a true representative. He's not a substitutionary sacrifice. No more than a lamb can truly atone for your sins and pay the penalty. And so he has to be a human in order to pay for our sins to represent us. He also has to be a human because he has to be able to die. Because God can't die. And so it's very important that he is a true representative of humanity and the true embodiment of what it means to be a human to be able to truly physically die in order to atone for our sins. And so in that way, he has to be a human for the death. Now, another reason, the third reason he had to be human was because he had to learn what it was like to be a human. We talked about that in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, that he had to grow and this understanding what it means to be a human. So Hebrews 4, he can relate to us and, and understand what it's like to suffer and struggle and all that kind of stuff, to give us compassion and to empower us. But this is why he had to be a human. But he also had to be God because no human can actually live a sinless life. 
so that if he was a human only, he would definitely sin. And therefore, when he died, he would only be paying for his death because he would have to stay dead for all eternity in order to pay for his sin. Therefore, he has to pay for our sin. And the only way he can do that is if he hasn't sinned himself. And only God can do that. And God has made it very clear all throughout the First Testament with messianic priests, with the messianic people of God who are anointed, who failed, the messianic priests of God who failed, the messianic kings of God who failed, and the messianic prophets of God who failed. And every single one failed to be this messianic, perfect, sinless being who could save Israel as a suffering servant. Jesus comes and does what no one else can, seen first and foremost in the, gar- in the, the wilderness temptation and continue through that. And so the fact that he has no sin means that when he dies, he's not dying for himself. He's not dying for himself. Only God can live a sinless life. Only God can live a sinless life. So the sacrifice actually atones for us. And then only God can conquer the death, grave, the devil, and sin, and come back to life. A human cannot resurrect itself. And only a God can overcome that eternal death that is necessary in order for that to happen. And so this is why it's very important to understand that according to Daniel 7, he has to be the God-man. Your salvation has nothing. It is empty. It is futile. It is incomplete and pathetic if he is not both God and man. And this is why when we went through comparative religions, every single religion that embraces Jesus in some unique way is either going to deny the humanity or deny the divinity of Christ. Because to embrace both is truth. And a lie from Satan cannot be true. It's not that Satan can't tell the truth. It's that if Satan does tell the truth, it just points you to Christ and salvation. So he's always going to twist it. And every single false religion out there either completely denies Christ altogether Or if they do embrace him, they deny either humanity or they deny his divinity. Because the devil knows that any one of those three, your redemption is empty. It is without weight. It is without power. Without power.